Testing, one, two. I wonder if we could cut the mic back just a slight bit. It's a bit hot. I feel like I have to whisper. Thank you. Uh, last week in our series called Famous Last Words, which is a study in the book of Revelation, we tackled Revelation 13, which is one of the hardest books in the Bible. Today we're going to move into 14, which is one of the messier ones. And so uh, let's ask God to lead us into this study this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your presence here among us. We thank you that, uh, that we can learn so many new things as we come to this book again and again. And we see you at work within its pages. We pray today that you will reveal yourself both in your word and in us. Lead us, Lord. Help us to see your direction. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Well, last week we were challenged to take a step back and maybe consider that, that first, before we try to apply it to anything else, the prophecy of the book of Revelation applied to the first century people who received the letter and shared it with the other churches around them. You know, context is very, very important in Scripture, right? When we, when we look into it, when you study theology, one of the first rules of interpretation is that context determines the, the meaning of words and paragraphs and sentences within, you know, what you're reading. Context is very important. You can't just lift out Scriptures and, and use them in some other place other than they were meant to when they were placed in the Bible. And we can't just ignore the meaning that those scriptures had to the people who heard them in the first place. Uh, we need to remember that, that this book was not written to you. This book was written to a group of churches in the first century. Now, it was written for you and preserved for you. And, and that's where I get my first century first rule when we're looking at this is that before we go off applying it, uh, what we read is if it's something that happens in a distant future in a galaxy far, far away, before we do that, we need to start where we're at with those seven churches that John wrote to with his vision in the first century. Let, let me refresh your memory a little bit from last week and the last couple of chapters. In Revelation 12, we find the dragon explicitly identified as Satan. He's the devil. He's Satan. He's the one who leads the whole world astray. And so we don't have to try to figure out who the symbol of the devil is, or the symbol of the dragon, rather. And uh, right at the beginning of Revelation 13, there he is standing, and he's giving power. He's given a throne. He's given authority to a beast from the sea. Two beasts in chapter 13, and we discovered that the most likely contender for the title of Beast of the Sea is, is Rome itself and its persecuting emperors that started with Nero and continue in that day with Domitian and all those who would persecute after that. And then we're introduced to a second beast who represents this whole system of little rulers and provincial rulers and city lords, the people who deceived the people in the provinces and led them astray. They're the masters of the Roman propaganda along with the soldiers of the emperor's cult who enforced Roman will outside of Rome and all through the empire. And they affected the seven churches that were located in Asia Minor in the northern part of what is now Turkey. Now, 
if you didn't pay tribute to Caesar in those days, if you couldn't get the right to trade in the marketplace, for example, in Ephesus, we know that in Ephesus, if you wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor, you couldn't get your guild card. And your guild card was what allowed you to buy and sell and trade in the marketplace. The same was true in many other parts. When it talks about this mark of the beast, when it talks about being able to buy and sell in the marketplace, this is what we're talking about. If you didn't bow down and worship the emperor, you were cut out. And that's why some of those churches that, that John talks to at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, they're going through really difficult times. You know, some of those folks might even be near starvation. And they certainly wouldn't have the ability to run their local business. Burning offering was a way of showing your faith in another God. So Christians refused to do that. Uh, it was a betrayal of their faith. They wouldn't do that. And some who refused to pay the tribute were taken as slaves. Some people were executed. And it was just a very difficult time. That happened right there in that first century context first. Now, we may see other parts. Prophecy often has a future-looking part to it as well. So we may see this kind of thing revive and take place again in our day and in the future. But how would you protect yourself in a situation like that? How would you protect yourself from this organized deceit that was going on? Last week we talked about how this trickery that was being used in some of those cities to deceive people into believing that, that this God that they were sacrificing to was real. Well, John is very blunt about this. He says, use your heads. Use your heads. Calculate this out. The number of the beast is 666. Six is the number of man. It's not the number of God. That makes this a false religion. This is a, a fake version of God's rule. No matter what the cost, he's saying to them, don't do it. Don't give in. Don't sacrifice. Don't take the mark of the beast, whatever that form it took, by worshiping him. He's Satan in disguise. This is not the real God. He says you need insight, you need discernment in order to see that. Well, you know, just because most of this happened in the first century doesn't mean it doesn't have an application for us right now. Satan often hides himself in political powers or behind power brokers around the globe. Sometimes he hides himself in religious power. He twists what is good for his own purposes. And pressure is added when you refuse to play the game. If you refuse to subject yourself to their power, you lose access. You lose the kinds of privileges that only come when you go along to get along. You may find yourself persecuted for resisting. And this stands in every age since this book took place. Anytime we soften our Christian beliefs and let them be watered down by prevailing politics or powers or, or whatever, we're worshiping the beast. And we're not worshiping Jesus. It's not country first. It's not leader first. It's not state first. It's not anything else first. It's God first. 
As believers and followers of Jesus, we view the world through the lens of God. Sometimes we call that Christian worldview. God is first in our lives. And, and if we let, let anyone or anything twist our vision of God so that a person or a thing or an organization or even the country that we love takes God's place, which is first place, then we really aren't Christ followers. Our beliefs outlined in God's word, the Bible, must guide our thoughts and actions and everything and in every sphere of our life. That doesn't mean you can't vote or that you, you can't love your country or that you can't participate in positions that carry some power or engage in, in people or with others in popular culture. It doesn't mean you can't do any of those things, but, but we must let Jesus and his word dictate our involvement in those things. We have to have discernment, special insight through the Holy Spirit, because some kinds of compromise can lead us into a place we don't want to go and ultimately can lead us into rebellion against God. You know, today is Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if you realize that. This is the day that we honor the coming of the Holy Spirit as, as outlined in Acts chapter 2. This is the day we celebrate that Jesus sent his Spirit to be our guide and to lead us. And you know, when I look at something like this and the advice given at the, at the end of chapter 13, I, I think, yeah, we need this indwelling Holy Spirit. We need his guidance because there are times when it is difficult to discern people's motivation. When it's difficult to discern whether is this from God or is this actually something from the devil? We need to be able to discern and, and so we thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost who leads us into all understanding who guides us through times when it's confusing or when it gets really tough, gives us that extra strength to maintain and continue. You know, following God's direction can be very unpopular today. We live in a day where everything is supposed to be flexible and negotiable and uh, a day in which we're supposed to go along with just about anything. But not everything fits faith in Christ, does it? Not everything. And just saying what I'm saying here this morning could probably get me canceled in three continents. You know, it's, it doesn't take much to get canceled by the establishment, whatever that is. We need discernment to, to really know what's going on in society and popular culture. And, and we need the courage to resist temptation to follow the masses, even when it comes at great cost. So that brings us into Revelation 14 chapter of the day. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Revelation 14. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to go through verse 5. Just look at that first little block, and uh, we're going to put that stuff up on the screen here this morning as well. This vision that, that John was given by Jesus to share with the churches, this part begins, and then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him That doesn't look like it. <laughs> Can we go back? I didn't even press the button. Boy, oh boy. Let's start there. 
Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and the loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. So this chapter starts back here. <laughs> Boy, this is going to kill me this morning. <laughs> Can you advance for me, please? <laughs> Thank you very much. New clicker, it just has got a hair trigger, and it doesn't always work very well. Either it or me. <laughs> so it's a fight. The chapter starts with Christ the Lamb of God in Revelation 14.1 standing on Mount Zion with an army of faithful followers. And, and these are the first fruits of those who were saved from Israel. We saw the 144,000 before. Back in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, it says 12,000 of these were taken from each tribe of Israel. And so this is the preservation of Israel. This is the, the faithful who came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, those who followed Christ, 12,000 from each tribe. They're faithful followers who haven't engaged in any sexual immorality. They are without lies. They're blameless. And they are standing with Christ in a spiritual battle. We've just come from a place in chapter 13 where the truth of the matter is the majority of the people in Rome compromised and took on the mark of the beast by burning incense in offering to the emperor who had been declared a god. And that mark is said um, in, in that chapter to be on the hand or the forehead. God's followers in Christ, they haven't taken it, it says. But they are the minority at that time. Chapter 13 ends with kind of a bleak outlook. It's a place under persecution and oppression. It's a place where being a believer was very difficult. And they were vastly outnumbered. It would be very, very easy in a situation like that to despair, to begin to give up hope. But then we change the chapter. And here's hope at the beginning. In this vision, Jesus the Lamb stands as king on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is just outside of the holy city, right outside the old city in Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And, and you'll find in Scripture that Mount Zion and Jerusalem are often used interchangeably. And it's also used in the Bible to refer to the Temple Mount. And so it's pretty important. At this time when John's writing, the whole city had been destroyed about 20 years before and the temple had even been burned. But here in this vision, Jesus is a victorious lamb. He's the one who's beaten Satan. He's beaten the laws of sin and death. And he's on Zion. He's on Mount Zion. 
And this holy space is connected with heaven. John can see Jesus on the mount, but he can also see heaven opened up at the same time. That's part of the vision. End of chapter 13, we have people taking on the mark of the beast, and it talks about it on the forehead and on the hand. And here, we have a different army marked a different way. We have God's army. And on their foreheads is the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. And they sing a new song before the throne. And the four living creatures and the elders, they're there to witness it. It's, we're in the throne room of God in that part. And the song, it says, is so loud, it's like rushing waters and pealing thunder. I remember going to some rock concerts in my youth that were so loud that I had to step outside to kind of catch my breath for a few minutes because my ears hurt so bad. I kind of envision it being like that. It's so loud, it's sort of beyond the human range. But it's not the sound of lost or despairing people. It's the sound of rejoicing. God's people aren't lost. And God's city is not lost forever. God's army is strong. God's army is the real army. Not this fake thing in Rome. Not this fake God in Rome. This is the real God. There's kind of a show of force going on, but it's a force of a different kind. This is lamb power, not man's power. And you have to remember that as we go through Revelation. We, you know, we love the image. We just sang about the lion and the lamb. You know, the lion's only mentioned one time in Revelation. And that's to identify Jesus as king. Jesus as the rightful heir. He is the lion of the tribe of, the tribe of Judah. He's fulfilling that prophecy, and he's in that place. But he is portrayed as the lamb more often. You know, we love the idea of the, the battling Lord, the battling lion, and it's a great image, and it's true that Jesus is, is fighting on our behalf. But he fights as the lamb. That sword that comes out of his mouth, that's the word of God. That's the word of God. This is the lamb fighting his own kind of war. It's a spiritual war. Our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is against what? Those powers and principalities, the you know, spirits of darkness. That's where our war is. This is lamb power, the power that defeated sin and death. And it's the power that gained victory by the blood of the lamb and the word of testimony that, that those who follow him are able to stand because of that. And so here we have this beautiful image that, that tells us, hey, <laughs> we're not going to lose this battle. We're not going to lose this war. We have this tremendous, tremendous vision. And, and you know, many people believe that the 144,000, that's not the whole group. They, they are kind of representative of those who've already come out of this tribulation, this time of testing and might represent that whole multitude we saw in chapter 7. Suddenly we get three angels. We're looking at this view of heaven. We've said, there's Jesus as the lamb on Mount Zion, and then the, you know, we're looking into heaven, we're seeing this, this heavenly group, and we're hearing this singing, and then three angels appear. 
says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. In every nation, tribe, language, and people, he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand... They, too, will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And there will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice in heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Last week we talked about how, how we have to be careful not to let the noise and the action and all the things that we're seeing in these chapters drown out what really is important for us to see. Right here in the middle of this, all this thunder and lightning and loud singing, um, the thunder and lightning and, and, and all of that, of course, is aimed at those who reject Christ. But for the followers of Christ and those who would follow him, there's a command and a promise. The first angel, it says, is proclaiming the gospel. A judgment is about to pass. And he says three things about that. Before this happens, you need to know these three things. First of all, he says, fear God. Fear God. For the unbeliever, there is a lot to fear here, right? There's the fear of judgment, the fear of hell, the fear of eternal separation from God, and all of these might give us pause and cause us to repent and to turn from our sin to God. For the believer, to fear God, of course, is to have reverence for God, to have awe for God. We fear God for different reasons. Well, second, the angel says, give him glory. What does it mean to give God glory? What does that mean anyway? To glorify him. You know, I, I think the first thing that pops into mind is praising God, and, and that is true. But I don't think that that's all of it. I think it also means to, to give God the acknowledgement of who he is and what he has done. And on a personal level, that means acknowledging that he is God. It's, it's the first step to trust and surrender. It's to believe that he's real, that this is God. The angel is preaching the good news, it says, the good news that we don't have to fear death, that we don't have to fear judgment, that the God of the universe is right here. And through his son, Jesus Christ, the things to fear have been banished. 
through the cross, sin is forgiven. Our debt is paid. Our chains are broken. Death is defeated. We've been set free. And so the angel says, worship him. Worship him. That's the third thing he says. You can't truly and fully worship God if you don't know him. Now, that may sound strange. I, I think the only way we can worship God before we know him is to worship him at a very, very surface level. And we can watch other people worship. We can sit in the midst of worship and experience the power of God moving around us. But when we receive the Spirit of God into us, when we receive Jesus, then we experience worship. Our spirit and God's spirit are connected in the way that God intended at the beginning of creation. Those broken lines are restored. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. All those things we feared are banished. And we are connected to God, and you are reborn, and you are made new, and you are set free. And your perspective changes because you begin to see things from the heaven side of life. All those hard days, all of those terrible things that we've been through, all of those losses and tragedies, they become short and small in comparison to what's coming. When we gain God's perspective, when we gain heaven's perspective, we realize that, yeah, this stuff that's happening to me right now, this is an awful thing, this is a terrible thing, but something better is coming. Fear of God, glory to God, worshiping God, not just in church on a Sunday morning, but with your whole life. That's how we worship God. Well, then there's another angel comes, and the second angel reveals that the power of Rome and its parts shown in the second beast, it's fallen. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon was a sin-fallen place. You might remember that. It was a place where Israel was carried off in 586 B.C., and, and they were put into captivity, and um, they were put there as a judgment from God because of their sin, because they kept turning away from God. So God allowed them to be taken off into captivity. And they weren't always nice. They worshipped idols, other gods. They didn't worship the God of Israel. You know, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They ended up in the fiery furnace because they refused to worship those gods. And they refused to bow down to that statue. You know, in, in, in just a few chapters, coming up here in the book of Revelation, it refers to Babylon that sits on the seven hills. That's one of our clues that the Babylon it's talking about is, is Rome. That Rome and Babylon are being compared here. And, and if you go back a little bit, if you go back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter refer references Rome as the Babylon. So now it says Babylon has fallen. If that applies to Rome, 
that's really announcing the doom of Rome, the fall of Rome, as if it has already happened. As far as God is concerned, it's already a done deal. It's a foregone conclusion. And in case anybody was tempted to, to choose the other way, to ignore the warning, starting at verse 9, that, that third angel warns of what's going to happen to those who choose to reject God. Those who take the mark of the beast and give in to the worship in Rome that really honors Satan, doesn't it? And what happens is not pretty. It says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night. Contrast that with what he says to God's people. You'll enter into rest. There's, there's this contrast here. There will be no rest for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This is a really sobering image. It's, it's a huge warning. It's terrifying, really, as it comes. Terrifying. Well, the very last part of the chapter, and this is what I meant when I said there's, there's, only, there's all this stuff in this chapter. It's, it's a difficult chapter because it has these three big parts. And the last part of this chapter is all about reaping. We started with Jesus, the Lamb of God on Mount Zion, and now we see Jesus coming on a cloud. We see him on a cloud. You might want to follow along in your Bible. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel came out, in the temp out of the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them on the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress outside of the city. And the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Wow. Jesus, who's the one, like the Son of Man, Made with the crown of gold on his head, he has a sharp sickle in his hand. And that harvest time is now, we're told. You know, the angel comes out of the temple. Angels are first and foremost God's messengers, right? And so here, probably in exchange between the Father and the Son, the time is now. The harvest is now. You know, harvest in the New Testament generally means or symbolizes people coming to Jesus. Not all of this is bad news. Remember back in the story of the woman at the well? You know, after, after the woman goes and she tells everybody what's happening, the people start coming out to them, and Jesus says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. 
that they are white with the harvest. Those people are coming to be saved, to believe. It's very widely believed that that this first swing of the sickle, that this swing of Jesus is bringing in the faithful believers who are coming out of the persecution, those who were martyred in the persecution. You know, the devil meant it for evil, like in the story of Joseph. They meant it for bad, for ill. The devil meant it for persecution and execution and, and to defeat God and to defeat God's people, and God turns that into a victory for those who died in martyrdom. We're promised in Scripture to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their death will not be in vain. Their reward will be amazing, he's promising, and it starts the moment they die. Like stepping through a doorway right into Jesus' arms. This very last part, though, that's the really hard part. Some feel that the harvest of the grapes that starts in verse 17 is the beginning of God's judgment. In fact, we know it is because it mentions God's judgment beginning a little earlier here in the passage. And I want you to notice that it's not Jesus who is gathering the grapes of wrath at the end of this chapter. It seems that this is the judgment on those who caused the martyrdom of the saints. That's what people believe. That's what sort of commonly is held. You know, it says this angel has a sickle to harvest grapes. Usually a sickle isn't used to harvest grapes. Usually, you know, some kind of pruning shear or a small pruning knife or something is used to remove grapes from the vine. But, I'm, but I've read that, that when the grapes go sour or the grapes go bad, the sickle comes out. <laughs> They're just cut off. And those grapes are thrown into the ground and trodden in. And that's where some of this imagery comes from. This part is kind of gruesome. It says, The angel gathered the earth's grapes, which represents these fallen people, and threw them into the winepress of God's wrath. We don't like to think of God's wrath, do we? Wrath means to have a whole lot of anger. But this anger is in relation to justice. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What happens when you read in the newspaper of some terrible thing that happens to a child or happens, happens to somebody, some horrible thing? Don't you feel angry? I certainly do. I find myself getting all worked up sometimes reading some of this stuff. I get really angry, and I think, this person needs to face justice. God thinks so, too. And so, as difficult as it is to look at this image, we're seeing God making sure that justice happens, that the crime doesn't go unpunished. They're given the chance, the angel has preached, there is the chance for them to hear the gospel of Jesus and respond to it, but those who don't respond to it, especially those responsible for the martyrdom of all of these people of God, they face justice. Now, the grapes are symbolic here. And the wine press and the blood, there's a lot of symbolism here. It says here that the blood flowed for 1,600 stadia, that's about 200 miles, and as deep as the horse's bridle. 
Now, you, we've talked before about how most of Revelation, like in the 90, 90th percentile, most of Revelation is either the quoting of Scripture from Old Testament prophets and other places or the paraphrasing of Scripture. And that's true here. Uh, this is referring back to Isaiah 63, where you see the image of the winepress and the person who is treading on the grapes. And it also quotes the apocryphal book of Enoch, which was written in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. But it was really popular and it was well known and, and people would be very familiar with it. And this is almost, this part about the blood and riding to the, the bridle of the horses, this is almost a direct quote from that book. What's important here is to remember that God will not let injustice and cruelty go unpunished. Judgment will come. And we'll all face judgment at some point. Some for the better and some for the worse. So what about us? Where, where do we fit into this story? And what's the promise that's extended to us? Verse 12 calls us, just like verse, or chapter 13 did, calls us to patient endurance in the midst of trial. It says, we are to keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. But what happens if we do? What's the promise? Well, I skipped over a bit earlier here. Kind of went right past it, read past it. But, but here's a promise. When our time comes and our death comes, our death will not be a curse. Our death will be a blessing. The Holy Spirit himself promises rest from your hard work for Jesus. Your hard work for Jesus, those deeds that you've had, they'll follow you. They'll be remembered. And the memory of them will follow you into the presence of Jesus and into his kingdom. And I can just picture, he'll receive you. And you know the words, right? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's the great promise for those who continue to follow. Keep on keeping on. Keep on serving Jesus. Be about your father's business, regardless of what's happening. That's part of the message all the way through Revelation. Don't stop what you're doing simply because the times are hard. Keep on going, because what's coming, what's coming is amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving presence every day. You walk with us closely, and you never leave us. You never stop loving us. You never miss seeing those times of injustice and loss and pain. You see them all. You haven't turned a blind eye. You haven't forgotten us. And Lord, you promised to lift up those who follow faithfully. And Lord, we know that one day we will be with you in heaven. And we'll go on to live with you in the new heaven and the new earth. We look forward to that day. We commit ourselves 
to pressing on and being the people of God, your church. Pledge ourselves to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.